You are listening to Asian Skycast, the show that brings you the most updated aviation industry insight. Okay, welcome to Fleet Week. Uh, this is going to be a Q&A uh, that we're doing with, with Jeff Lowe. I know some of you have heard the, uh, the podcast we've done, but uh, this will be something a little bit different. Uh, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to go to Asian Sky Media, download our Business Jet Fleet Report, download our Asian Sky Quarterly, and please watch the presentation that Jeff just did. Uh, we're not going to delve too much into the specific numbers, so uh, we're really assuming that uh, you've already either read the publications or watched his video. Uh, these are questions that have been submitted by uh, readers. We've had over 300 submissions, so we really appreciate it. Thank you for everyone who submitted a question. We obviously can't get to them all, uh, but we've tried to pick out some of the more interesting ones, and we'll get the benefit of Jeff's uh, we'll do. We'll do the best we'll we do can. The, we'll do the best we can. So... Um, it's sort of like an AMA, but hopefully, uh, hopefully find it interesting for everyone. Uh, we're going to break this up into sections. So we'll do COVID first, I think, Jeff. Then I want to do questions that were about sale and purchase. Okay. Uh, then we'll cover some Asia Pacific trends and then wrap up with, I think, some of the things you've seen over your career and some of the personal trends that, that you've seen. So Jeff hasn't seen these questions, by the way. So we're going to... We're gonna to try to try to make them make them work. Yeah. Sit. Okay. So okay. Um, so COVID is obviously uh, the number one thing that that we've gotten questions are. You and I have been talking about what COVID nineteen will do uh, to business aviation utilization. And I'm not here talking about purchasing jets, but just utilizing private aviation. And the first question we got is just what will uh, will COVID nineteen drive business jet utilization in the long term? Uh, yes, I think it. I think it will. I mean, it, there's a there's a bit of a silver lining to the crisis uh, in that uh, if ever there was a need or a time for business aviation to to shine, general aviation to shine, it, it's now. I mean, in times of crisis, when maybe the commercial airlines are hampered because of of their structure and how they operate, uh, business aviation, general aviation can fill a void. So definitely, I think uh, we'll sort of find a level at the moment of utilization that we're able to accommodate. Uh, but as I think time grows on, more and more people will look to business aviation to find solutions. And again, a lot of that's going to be humanitarian. It's going to be delivering uh, medical supplies and so on and so forth. But, but that has always been a component of our industry. And I think that's the opportunity we have to, to maintain utilization. And through this, hopefully gain more visibility and for yeah, for us to just move on to bigger and better things once we get through this. So then someone asked as a corollary to that, will that first start with charter and then eventually move to the acquisition of jets? And I think... Yeah, the answer to that I think, well, I think is yes. Um, I think in the short term, and we're seeing it ourselves. I mean, Asian, Asian Sky Group has a, has a charter, charter business as well. So we're seeing that ourselves where we're seeing more charter. And again, it's it's moving flight crews around, it's it's moving medical supplies, it's getting people to where they need to be. Uh, so again, I think the first impact we'll see or the first plus we'll see is on the charter side, but that will eventually lead back to uh, acquisitions happening and hopefully more acquisitions because people do will see the essential role that we play. So I think then to follow on that, another question we received was, and, and we talked about this on an earlier podcast, so this may be, be the reason why, but do we see an increase in demand for uh, what they call flexible interiors, meaning interiors that can change between VIP, 
corporate jets and medical interiors. I, th I think we will to a certain degree, but I don't. It's not the mainstay of the fleet here in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, yes, we we do have special mission aircraft here and and convertible aircraft here in the Asia Pacific region, but the bulk of the fleet is all for private or corporate use. So, I think maybe some incremental business, but not a lot. I think again, at the end of the day, it's going to be driven by corporate purchases and private purchases. And again, kind of going back to your previous question. Um, you know, I think a lot of those 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 buyers that may be sitting on the fence uh, now will look to business aviation again. Just as we've talked many times, that it's a, it's a sterile cabin where you the only people that are in their cabin are yourself and your family members. So that will have an appeal to some new buyers, I think. Okay. Um, next question, and this is a two part question. The first was, what have you seen in terms of financing business jet financing for Asia? And then how will that be impacted by COVID? I think probably the biggest impact on the financing is the uncertainty of we don't know how long this is going to last. And if you don't know how long this is going to last, you really can't peg where that residual value is going to be of that asset. Right. Okay. So again, you can make the argument, well, financing is five years. So this is, you know, you can't really focus on the now because you're really worried about something five years from now. But again, if I'm getting into a financing and I've got, it's a pre-owned aircraft today, how do I value that airplane? Right. And so the challenge again is where it's very, very hard to value, do valuations right at this point in time with the level of uncertainty, but not knowing how long it's going to last and not knowing if we're going to get a bounce back and when that bounce back is going to come back. Is it so, fair to say though, that up until COVID financing had uh, been, well, I shouldn't say have been, the, the availability of financing had been coming back and that we're seeing some new entrance into the market. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then that's both on the, uh, the business aviation side, on the rotary side, uh, general aviation, certainly, you know, my, my own perception was that a lot of the financing institutions that had even been in the commercial airline space and the leasing business on that side, you know, margins, and that's, I mean, that's a highly, highly competitive business right. and margins are super, super razor thin. And even them with certainly access to fairly cheap money these days, we're looking for new areas to make investments. And a lot of people had subsequently started re-looking again at business aviation. And, and these are some of the big players that we all know yeah. that have maybe, we've always thought have been sitting on the sidelines. Well, they're back feelers are out to whether or not this is the space they want to get back into again. So yeah. again, you're right there. Yeah. It's growing. And I think unfortunately COVID-19 came along to kind of put a stall in that plan, but I think it'll, they'll pick it right back up as quickly as possible. Yeah. And so. I think one of the things we had seen is uh, maybe a willingness on the part of some financiers to look at B-Reg again. Yes. So maybe these are, let's mm -hmm. call it a Western or a non mainland Chinese financing institutions who had previously been, I guess, uh, cautious about yeah. financing a B-registered airplane, yeah. but that had sort of found a mechanism or mechanisms to allow them to do RMB yeah. and to allow them to do- And also some of them were looking at uh, lower valued assets as well. It wasn't the, I don't get out of bed unless it's a $20 million right. airplane kind of thing. A lot of them recognize a lot of the opportunities now are going to move down. Right. And we saw that in the fleet report, for instance, that a lot of the aircraft that are coming into the region and contributing to its growth are- Light, very light, super mid-sized aircraft. Right. So, um, and then the last one on on COVID, which I'm I'm putting in is 
for those of you, again, if you've had a chance to read Asian Sky Quarterly or if you've had a chance to watch Jeff's presentation, there is a lot of survey data yes. in there. And the survey results, and this is from the first quarter, so really Feb January, February, March, and early April, um, can you just expand a little bit on what the survey results kind of hit home for you? Uh, I guess, uh, I, I guess the big impact for me was that uh, if you want to say the devastation is across the board, nobody's been spared, and uh, there is a very much a time element to it as well. As we saw, depending on when you responded to the survey, opinions changed, and. As we got deeper into the quarter, those opinions got worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Uh, so again, that was sort of two elements of the survey that were that were interesting, and again, elements that we have to keep an eye on uh, because again, everything is time sensitive, very time sensitive. Uh, we will, of course, do another survey the next quarter. It'll be very interesting to have those two historical quarters to compare yeah. uh, and see how they change. And again, it'll, it will all depend again on. News uh, that comes out of, if you will, the globe, the market, the world yeah. on how they're all handling the coronavirus. Yeah. Okay. So. Good. Uh, okay. So I want to switch tax now to sort of the sale and purchase market and some of what we've seen there. Um, one of the comments that uh, you've made, and again, please watch Jeff's presentation for this, is when we did the numbers for 2019, there were fewer reductions or deductions in the Asia-Pacific business jet fleet than you expected. Uh, I think it was, the number was 84. I can't remember exactly yes, off the top 84, of yes. But you had expected to see many more business jets having either been sold or relocated out of the region. Right. So one of the questions we received is, is that because there were actually fewer sellers or just because transactions were much more difficult or um, the ex asking price expectations among Chinese owners or, or sorry, I should say Asia Pacific owners were still too high. I mean, um, is there anything that you can point to from sort of what you've seen day to day throughout the year? Uh, I wouldn't say it was the, the first point uh, for me. And I think for Asian Sky Group and we, and we do our fair share of transactions through the year, really it's, it's been that the transactions just take that much longer. Right. And I think, yeah, and we saw it in, in our 2019 results that we had expectations that we would do X number of airplanes in the last quarter and, and how many of those flowed over into the next quarter. Uh, so again, for me, it is a fact of, of the business here in Asia Pacific that the, the deals take longer. They tend to be very complex. Yeah. There tends to be a lot of moving pieces. Uh, and you've got all kinds of export uh, jurisdiction, uh, financings, all kinds of different elements to the transaction. Uh, we kind of joke that we live for that day when you just find a buyer who wants to buy and a seller who wants to sell and it's a handshake and we just do the deal but it's just not going to happen no. so again a lot of it was just yeah, the business that we expected to materialize through the year didn't and another person asked so of the sales out of asia where are most of those aircraft going most of them are going to the United States, and again, that's probably not anything you know earth-shattering to most people. But having said that, we you know we had our our fair share of deals that were Mexico, Canada, uh, into uh, South Africa or Southern Africa. Uh, so again, but the majority of the transactions were certainly U.S. buyers looking for looking for opportunities in Asia. Um, and then I guess we touched on this. A but second. if I can, I mean, the interesting side of it also was it was it didn't. It wasn't centered on one aircraft category. 
Right. I mean, you know, we transacted everything from CJ3s through, you know, A330s. And so it's it's everything in, uh, on both ends and everything in between. Right. So that's good. That's a good point. Um, so just following on that, and I know you're going to love this question. Somebody said, what are, what are the struggles in getting business jet deals done in Asia? Uh, and then I've just highlighted first timers, legal counsels, bad representation, no transparency, unethical brokers. I mean, you know, management companies yeah, that, that don't help. That, that pretty uh, much sums <laughs> it up. Just, uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, a lot of times I'll say, you know, we, we dealt with a lot of these clients when they were first time buyers and we're now dealing with them when they're first time sellers. And I'm not sure which is worse. And again, a lot of it is being driven by the fact that they have unrealistic. We love all of our clients. Yeah, we love all of our clients. And, you know, it, it's part of our job to educate them and get them to understand the market dynamics. But most of them come into that process with higher expectations of really what their aircraft is worth. So it's a bit of a struggle from day one to get them to understand the market. And the other side of it, and you kind of touched on it, again, you know, this is an emerging uh, emerging market out here. So finding the people with the appropriate skill sets, and that means finding a good lawyer maybe that has aviation experience and understands the ins and out of taking a B China registered airplane and moving it into an end registration. I, you know, there, there's not a lot of choices out there. And so a lot of companies will rely on their in-house counsel. Uh, and again, a big education curve again. And yeah. so that's why we commented earlier, the transactions tend to take so long. And why do we you- get there in the end, yeah, we get there in the end, but it's, uh, it's, there's certainly a lot of stress. At- um, next question. Is it a disadvantage, or um, let me rephrase the way this is asked. What they're really asking is, is there a value, um, is there a negative value ascribed to an aircraft that's based in Asia compared to one in America? So if you're trying to sell identical G450s, one is based somewhere in Asia and one is based, uh, you know, in Savannah, um, you know, is there going to be a, a lower value ascribed to the, the Asia-based aircraft? Uh, typically there is. Uh, whether I feel it's appropriate or not is another question. Uh, I think uh, everyone is very quick to judge, if you will, all Asian aircraft into the same bucket. And I always kind of answer this question by saying, guys, there are good operators and bad app or operators no matter where you are in the world. And we have our share out here, just like you may have in, in Canada or anywhere else. So to put everyone in the same basket, I think, is, is not correct. The issue you typically have in the end is it's just, again, it's, it's geography, if you will. In that if I'm a U.S. buyer of a G550 and I'm, I'm based in New York, and if I draw a circle from New York of one-hour flight, I, I can probably pick up six or seven pre-owned G550s for sale within an hour's flight from where I live. So why am I going to get on an airplane and fly 16 hours all the way to Hong Kong and then take that van up through Shenzhen to wherever to look at that 550 sitting in, uh, in, in Guangzhou? Yeah. Why am I going to do that? Yeah. So, yeah, no. So it's always, that's the, the challenge for, uh, for, uh, an Asian seller. And again, so a lot of times you're, you're just forced into this, uh, the situation where you can only lure him over if you give him a good price. All right. No, I think so, that's, 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 exactly but our, our recommendation then is to our, our, our Asian based sellers, if they feel the aircraft's being undervalued, well then move it to the market where it's, it's going to sell. So move it to the U S and we'll sell it from there. Right. 
Okay. Um, next question is, which side tends to be more difficult, the buyer or the seller? I love putting Jeff on the spot. Uh, the answer to that is whichever end is in Asia. Okay. <laughs> or is the answer whichever one is doing it for the first time? Um, or- yeah, I mean, if, if it's a if it's a, chi- a Chinese or Asian seller and the aircraft's going to the U.S., typically you're not having a problem on the U.S. end. It's it's on the Asia end. Uh, if it's a, a, a U.S. seller and the aircraft's being bought by a, a, a Taiwanese uh, buyer, uh, it's the Taiwanese end. It's not the U.S. end. And again, that generally all comes down to, um, if you will, the sides are at different points in their understanding of the market and, and education on the business. You know, the U.S. is a mature market. Uh, ours is not. And there's a big, big learning curve. Yeah. Okay. You know, I've, most people, they ask me what I do, if I, what I do for a living, and I'll say, I'm, I'm an educator. We're educators. And again, even though a lot, a lot of times we only work on one side of the transaction per se, our job is to facilitate, and that means a lot of times trying to get our client here in Asia to understand the position of the other party so that we can move the transaction forward. Right. So, okay. uh, Let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about some of the trends in Asia. <laughs> okay, uh, we are back. Um, we're going to answer some questions now that have to do with sort of the trends that we've been seeing in Asia, not just right now, but over the last sort of year, two years, three years. Um, first question is, do you expect pre-owned acquisitions to continue to exceed, uh, new, I guess, new orders when it comes to Asia and then specifically China? Uh, yes. Uh, we've seen that trend growing over the past few years. Definitely. Uh, and again, it's all part of the education. I mean, you could probably go back five years or 10 years and they wouldn't buy anything else but new. But nowadays it's very much, uh, they understand the value that you could find in a pre-owned aircraft to a point now where we're used to be 40, 60, where we're 60, 40 now. And that, and that will continue. And again, I think continue not only that, not only for the reason of, of the value, but we have more corporate purchasers in the market now than we did before. And they tend to be more attractive to better value for their capital, which is a pre-owned purchase. So then the next question I think goes along with that, what you're saying about corporates, which is for greater China and really specifically mainland China, uh, do you think we will see a shift to more mid-size aircraft? Uh, China has traditionally been a, a large cabin, ultra long range market. Everyone is betting on that. I mean, for sure. Uh, as we all know, the OEMs are all heavily invested in this market and, and that includes Textron and that, that includes all the, the mid-size Embraer. And so they're here as well. And, and the hope is that certainly those categories become uh, a sizable factor in the, in the fleet as well. And it, it will happen over time. Uh, geographically, China is roughly the same size as the United States. There's no reason why a, a light or a mid-sized aircraft can't be successful in that market. It's just a matter of time. Well, and is it also a matter of corporations? So I think about maybe a very large U.S. corporation, a GE or somebody like that, where maybe the CEO flies a G650, but the vice presidents and you know some other people, they may get use of the corporate plane, but it might be a sovereign or a challenger. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've seen a lot of that in China yet, but yet. I think, no. I no. think our hope is that 
that bifurcation kind of yeah and we've, and we've seen situations where uh, that that u.s corporation is is happy to take that uh, that united flight out of chicago and, and come into hong kong but they're then looking for transport to take them around the asia pacific region right. and that really lends itself to a mid-size aircraft so i think uh, in china specifically it's 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 a time factor uh uh, probably the, the 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 corporations need to move up further in into the into their revenues, if you will. Um, a lot of the the businesses in in China aren't aren't to that point yet where they can afford a full size ownership of their own. Right. I mean, it begs its it begs itself to uh, some sort of partial ownership. No, and, no, okay, no. I know it's a you know memberships or everything else, and and there are plenty of them that abound in in the China market. None of which have ever worked, but. I mean, the market seems to be ripe for that at some point in time, if someone can find the right formula. So speaking of that, this is a question from uh, later, but I'm going to move it up. Why is charter so expensive in Asia? I mean, compared to, say, in the U.S.? It's, it's really a function of all the, the third-party charges. Uh, you know, the actual, as I, as I normally tell people, you know, I might want to fly from Hong Kong to Shanghai and, and the hourly rate on the aircraft is 6000 $7,000. And so maybe my, my flight charges are twenty five, thirty thousand $30,000, but I may have third-party charges, handling, landing, navigation, overflight, permits, whatever, uh, compensation fees and, and the likes that are actually more than that amount. Right. And so that's why it's so expensive. Yeah, because I mean, as you just said, we, we deal with this a lot where we have uh, an American client flying over maybe commercial, getting to Hong Kong, and then maybe wants to visit Singapore, Beijing, somewhere else, Hong Kong, and then go back. And they look at you know yeah. the bill for that private flight, even if it's a medium aircraft, and their flight department has a coronary. Uh, well, again, it's you know Hong Kong down to Singapore. Think of all the airspaces that you have to travel through in order to make that simple trip. And it's not free. Right. You've, you've got all those charges. And then again, just because of the, if you want, Hong Kong and Singapore may be bad examples. I mean, the the airport charges you have at both ends are probably some of the highest in the world. Yeah, I mean, people so, forget uh, everything in Asia basically is an international flight. So it's uh, yeah. it's not like... So landing, parking. Uh, and again, in some cases, particularly in China, your, your permissions... Your permission fees, compensation fees, and all kinds of things. It all adds up very quickly. Yeah. And yeah, it's sticker shock at the end of the day. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. Uh, are you seeing, uh, this is maybe another good follow are you seeing continued offtake of business jets from Hong Kong to other cities like Clark in the Philippines because of congestion at the Hong Kong airport? And actually, I think we had an earlier conversation with somebody this morning who said that that hasn't really been the case. Yeah, it, it it hasn't occurred. So for those who don't know, and I and I, well, let me set let me set okay. the stage for that. For those who don't know, Hong Kong is is basically extremely congested. Okay, there's no space for business jets here, especially for parking. And uh, Clark in the Philippines is an hour and fifteen minutes away, and so there had been, and I think there continues to be the hope that it can become a parking lot and maybe a service center for Hong Kong based business jets. Or even that an executive flies into Hong Kong, drops him off, and then sends the plane to Clark for two days, and then comes back and picks him up. You seem a little skeptical of that. I'm, I'm definitely skeptical. Skeptical, Because again, to a certain degree, the problem in Hong Kong has shifted a little bit away from parking to slots. Right. So sending the airplane away to Clark does not solve my slot problem. Okay. 
And the other issue I've had in the past is, and again, when I first came to to Hong Kong, you know, the the model we had back then was for traveling within China. Well, and all the issues here in Hong Kong, we'll base the aircraft in Shenzhen. The owners can just drive up to Shenzhen in their in their Alpha vans and everything else, and go through, and and just go to Shenzhen Airport and pick up the airplane there. It made sense, and economically, it made all the sense in the world. But not one owner wanted to do that because it defeats the purpose of the flexibility and productivity of my business jet. I want to go to the BAC and get on my airplane and go from there. So what you're saying is effectively, if someone wants to take a, a trip soon and then they have to wait. For the guest exactly, for exactly. Oh, no, and then I have to, uh, in those days, it was, uh, what, you're telling me I have to drive all the way up to Shenzhen and everything? Oh, and they just, it basically, it comes back to, forget it. Right. I want my airplane where I can use it. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, and I've got to say, I mean, and this somewhat separates the good management companies from the bad management companies, it kind of falls back on the management company to make that invisible to the owner, right. that his airplane is always available. I mean, maybe you are moving it around, but as far as he knows, when I need it, it's available. So, um, at, so at Asian Sky Group, we do a lot of business with corporate airliners, BBJs, ACJs. We do a lot of um, completion management, things like that. So somebody was asking, is there a specific trend that Asian owners prefer in, in their interiors? Uh, or is there... Um, is it very easy, I guess, or distinct to tell when a corporate airliner is being completed for a Chinese owner, a Thai owner, or an Indonesian I, owner? I, I would probably say the, the the biggest issue is they they want to have a highly personalized cabin. Person, okay. That, I mean that that's, that's right. typically the issue at the end of the day. And as we all know, the the downside of that is when you go to sell your airplane, right. you have to find someone that loves what you've done. Right. And again, a lot of these buyers are, are successful entrepreneurs and everything else, and, and they want to have the interior the way they want to have it. They don't want to have to make compromises. And that's all very fine, but you have to recognize at the end of the day, if you're going to move this asset, you've got to find someone who likes that too. And so a lot of times, the, the big challenge is, is managing that. Right. Uh, question on registries, something that we've been fo- we focused on in the Business Jet Fleet Report this year. Uh, we've seen a trend into um, uh, business jet owners in Asia m- utilizing offshore registries yep. more, things like sure. Cayman, Bermuda, things like that. Uh, what's driving that trend? Uh, I mean, the the dominant registration used to be a, a lot of B China registrations, and but that in, now entails a heavy tax. So a lot of times, what's driving the registration is certainly tax. Um, Initially, we used to see a lot of Hong Kong registrations, but again, uh, what probably is driving people away from that, it's not a very flexible registration. It has a lot of costs associated with it. There's a lot of hoops and, if you will, hurdles you have to jump over to get it and keep it and make it valid every year after year after year. So again, a lot of that is moving away to the offshore registries because there's less tax involved. They're simple, they're flexible, quick. Uh, relatively inexpensive to obtain and get the services. So that's that's what's driving that. Okay. And there is also an element of masking who the owner is and where he is based. Oh, so a lot of times the offshore registries are being used because uh, certainly the owner is trying to, for, for various reasons, just trying to build some distance between his home country, if you will, and and the registration of the aircraft. So he's trying to build some firewalls. 
So then sticking with uh, the management company theme, how have management companies evolved uh, over the last few years? I mean, I think, I guess maybe I would amplify that by saying years ago, we saw a massive proliferation of management companies in China. Sort of everywhere we looked, there was a new management company starting. Now it seems to have either consolidated or some of them have kind of gone out of business. Um, well, initially what you had here in Asia and the way it's probably changed the most is, you know, before they provided a full service. I mean, we're talking soups to nuts. And whether you like that or not, that's what you got. Uh, and uh, probably because they were first-time buyers and they didn't know enough about how the aircraft operates and what the costs are associated with that, and a bit of it take the, take the problem away from me, they all kind of said, look, I'll sign up for that, full service. Nowadays, though, again, some of those those clients are now on the, a second aircraft, which tends to be maybe a smaller one as well. Uh, and they understand the dynamics more of, of the management business. And they go, look, I, I want boutique service. Right. I want to go down a checklist and tick the boxes. So you do have what I refer to as these legacy management companies that are still pushing the old model. And there are clients that want that for sure. But I think they're a diminishing client base where more these days you're looking for uh, a client who has, I, I want this, this, and this. I'm going to do this over here myself because right. I think I can handle that. I only need this, this, this and from you. So it's more of a boutique type service. But was part of that that change also that, um, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with Asia, specifically greater China, uh, you really can't have a corporate flight department, right? You really need a management company structure. Right? Absolutely, yes. And so I think a lot of these like first-time buyers, you know, they were looking at the costs, and they were saying to themselves, well, if I have two planes and now I can be a management company and now I can attract other, you know, it's the classic, like, can I lay off the cost by having my own yep. operation? Yep. Uh, and then, of course, they realize that it's not so profitable and not so easy. It's yes. not so easy. Um, yeah, and- but you're right. I mean, in, in certainly in China, for instance, you have to have an AOC in Hong Kong. You have to have an AOC. So that drives up the costs for the management company uh, considerably. And again, there's tends to be a long approval process period where you have to have full staff on board. And I mean, it, it's just an expensive thing to have to go through. Yeah, I think and again, as you write, a lot of buyers at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of the management companies we have today have come about from the buyers deciding to get into that business themselves. One or two owners get together and they form a, they form a management company, as you correctly said, hoping that I'll be able to get business, enough business to basically subsidize my own airplane doesn't always work out that way. So then a follow on to that about management companies is somebody asked, is there a, I'm not going to use the word they use. Is there an, I guess a Western Asian um, split? Let's say I'm thinking now of like a Metrojet and like a Bellowings where the client profile is very distinctly different. Um, They were asking it in a a less diplomatic way, but... um, (laughs) Uh, yes, I, I, I would say that. I mean, we do have here in Hong Kong uh, more international brands, if you want to call it. We've got Jet Aviation, we have TAG, and so there certainly is a... Uh, and by the way, there's nothing negative about Metro or Bellowing. So no, no, of course not. No examples kind. of two different client bases. Yeah, again, it's just, it would be natural for a, for a Western owner then to, to navigate towards those. And again, because he may have been familiar with them from other parts of the globe. 
whereas uh, that uh, that Chinese owner that's based in Dalian, uh, for him, he, he has no idea who Metrojet is, but he knows uh, maybe uh, LilyJet or, or something which is a more local management company. So naturally, just because of the geography or the just uh, previous experiences, you do find, you do get operators that are more Chinese-owned, Chinese registered airplanes versus others that are more Western based. Right. And s- some of the management companies are, are, are just China management companies as right. well. Whereas someone like a tag is throughout Asia as well. So uh, Jeff, how do you advise uh, clients or, or what do you advise clients when selecting or helping them to select a management company? Well, I guess the first thing I try to impress upon them is that it's, he's a long-term business partner for you. Okay, it's not someone who's going to just take care of your airplane for six months. And not only is he a long-term business partner for you, he's someone you're going to put your family and yourself in their hands. And equally as important, it's someone else you're going to put the aircraft into hands as far as maintaining the value of that asset as well. So it's, it's not a relationship to take lightly. So take your time, do your due diligence, just don't ask for a quote and look at the numbers You need to meet these people and understand that they have the same approach to the business as you expect them to have yourself. It is a long-term business decision, and there has to be a meeting of the minds to a certain degree, or else it'll be one of those 12 months in, 12 months out type of relationships. So again, I usually try to emphasize with everyone else to take their time and make sure you choose the right one because they're an important partner, not only for your personal protection and service and everything else and standards, but just to maintain the value of the asset as well. So it's and, a big, it's a big decision. And it's, it's a big, inter- decision. I mean, it's interesting. And there are a lot of people out here to choose from as well. well so it's, it's a, it's a, a tough market. choice. Look, I think we've had to have some management companies that maybe uh, for historical reasons were able to charge a little bit more. And then I think people felt maybe it was too expensive. And then on the other side, we've seen management companies that almost don't charge anything um, to get your, your airplane in the door. So I think there's definitely been a, there sort of had to be a coming together, I think, of those two two dichotomies because they were very, very different. Yes, very different, yeah. So Okay. Uh, just on maintenance, um, so we had a question on just how has the MRO market evolved? Uh, I think for me, it's easy one to answer is just we've seen the OEMs to some extent, effectively yes, take over. Take over. Uh, whereas Absolutely. before you had a lot do we, of service. Do we have any independents left? Um, well, Jet Aviation is somewhat an independent. Okay. No. Okay. Um, All right. If you say so. Yeah. So in the last few years, we've seen uh, Jet Aviation, which is owned by General Dynamics. So a sister company of Gulfstream, acquire Hawker Pacific. Most recently, we've seen Fal- Deso Falcon acquire ExecuJet. Uh, Bombardier has been building its own service centers in Singapore and Tianjin, Tianjin for some time. Yep. Uh, Textron is similarly has its own yep. service center in Singapore yep. and is looking at expanding around the region. Uh, so far, Embraer does not have its own um, dedicated facility. They use third parties, but yep. we have to assume that one day they, they will. Um, so really, when, when they need to, probably. When, when they need to. And, and the reasons for that are varied. Um, there are a lot of reasons why the OEMs really want their own service centers, not least of which because it's a sales tactic, right? I mean, they want to be able to say, um, when you're spending $60 million on a plane. Well, again, I think and there's, there's, there's good money to be made in that business. Sometimes. And so I, I think, again, it's all part of the vertical integration that the, the OEMs are looking for and be able to c- control that whole client relationship as well. Yeah. So, um, 
Okay, that's fair. Uh, the other question we had is, is more MRO, MRO work being done locally in Asia now? And I think the, the background to that is uh, we've historically seen a lot of owners, particularly owners in mainland China or Hong Kong with ultra long range aircraft. Uh, they will take their Gulfstream back to Savannah or they will take their Falcon uh, back to Dassault in France. Uh, but because of COVID-19, because of travel restrictions, there's been a recent upturn in let's call it, I guess, the local yes. maintenance market. Yeah. And I think, but as you said in the past, it would not be unusual to see for a Gulfstream owner who would take his aircraft to Van Nuys and get it done there. But <clears throat> the reason for doing that was typically Gulfstream can put more resources and more manpower on that aircraft in Van Nuys than they could say here with Metrojet in Hong Kong. So again, most of the owners were looking at it. it. It wasn't a question of money. It was a question of how long is my aircraft not going to be available? Right. And they could send it to Van Nuys, even with the transit times, and maybe get it back in 10 days where it would take three weeks to get it done out of the local guys. So again, I mean, that, but that's changed as well. I, yeah, mean, I, I think mean, the, the, the size and the scope, and the expertise of the local MROs, which are no longer local because they're all part of the OEM network now. Right. So that is different. And again, I think culturally, there was always a propensity to, I'm going to take it back to the OEM. Yeah. It's like uh, my Mercedes, I, I take it to the Mercedes dealer. I, I don't take it to, you know, Bill's auto shop around the corner. I just don't do that. So. Yeah. And I think you also have some oddities that probably won't go away. Like, uh, you know, if someone in Asia is planning to spend August in the south of France. Yes. Well, okay, yep. I'm going to be yep. at the, the vineyard. I might For as sure. well uh, have, have Desso take care of my, uh, my aircraft. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break. We are back. Uh, so now um, we're going to do history time. History right? time. History time right. with Jeff Lowe. As you know, Jeff and I like to do these time time things. So every time I see him, I have to uh, come up with a new one. So this is history time. Um, Jeff, when did you first get to Hong Kong? 19, Professional, I mean, to work full time. Let me put it that 1997. Four September. Gulf, for Gulfstream. Nope. At, for Bombardier. Sorry, that's right. I knew that. So I'm, Bombardier. And then, I'm, I'm Canadian. So I came here originally out with the Bombardier Business Aircraft Division. So, and these questions now are from me, by the way. These are so, not user questions, but. And um, that was uh, September 97. Okay. So just after the, the handover. handover. And just at the start of the the first Asian Asian crisis, crisis. okay, with the Thai bot and everything. So I guess, and this is a very broad question, so feel free to just just whittle it down a little bit. But what's changed um, in the business jet market in Asia since you arrived? And I'm not just talking about the size of the fleet, but just. I I used to characterize a. a, a a typical buyer being, I mean, he was a he was a chairman of a big corporation, and that corporation had a, probably a, a multitude of other divisions under it. And you know, the chairman was getting into the aircraft for actually being driven by personal requirements, and he was concerned about his personal safety. He wanted privacy. Uh, at that point in time, maybe he he preferred private aviation to flying on the Chinese airlines. Uh, and so he was getting into an aircraft because of those reasons. And typically, uh, it was a cash purchase. It wasn't financed. It was brand new. Uh, and, uh, and that was the scope of that type of transaction back then. What we saw over time was, though, that that, that buyer typically has, has changed now. 
where it's probably a corporate buyer or it's a chairman who's buying it and it's a corporate purchase. Like it's no a longer public company. That's exactly. Listed. And he's buying it for, 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 you'll always have a personal element, but he's buying it also now for business reasons. He understands the productivity and the efficiency that the aircraft brings to him. But because it's a corporate purchase now, it's, it's, it's probably financed because he doesn't want to tie up all his money in that airplane. And it could very well be a pre-owned purchase now because he sees good value in a pre-owned aircraft. So that's some of the changes I've seen over the years. But that's very typical for an emerging market coming down the, the learning curve, if you will. Um, obviously, the other changes have been, um, you know, China's always been uh, the big dog out here. It's, it still is. Uh, but other regions are are are, are prospering and or, or in, in starting to, uh, if you will, bear the fruits of our labor over all these years. You see, Vietnam, for instance, is 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 very interesting market at the moment and and is adding on adding on business jets. So again, as you would expect to see, the market is diversifying as well. Diversifying is is in far of as far as regions, geography, and as we talked about earlier, diversifying also, and we're seeing more. Uh, different categories of aircraft out here as well. Right. Okay. So like, for example, I, I don't want this to be too China centric, but like you've got a lot of experience also in the Philippines. Yes. Right? Um, that's a market that has, I think when you first started was very different, right? Than it is now. Yes. That's probably yes. changed as much as yeah, it changed as much. I mean, uh, the, the Philippines was always a, a light jet market and, and a lot of it being just because it was domestic. Um, but uh, I had the, the fortune when I was working for Bombardier originally to do the first large cabin airplane into the Philippines, which was a which which is a challenger, um, and that market has moved on now to where it it has its its share of long range large cabin airplanes. Um, how have the OEMs evolved in their approach to Asia over the last twenty years? Well, my 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 uh, friends at Falcon may not like this, but. Uh, you know, I, I originally started here with Bombardier and then eventually moved over to Gulfstream. And certainly I was the, the beneficiary of having a strong, strong support from, uh, from Savannah. And at that time, a, a chairman, president of Gulfstream, Brian Moss, who was a hundred percent believer in the future of Asia and would provide to me the resources I needed and would come to Asia. 10 times a year, 12 times a year. And so he was a big, big, big fan. And that made my job so much easier. Um, some of the other OEMs were a little late, a little late to the party. And I, I uh, sort of going to zero in on Falcon at this point in time, where I remember we, that we love you. Falcon. We, we love you, Falcon. But, you know, and, uh, but, you know, they eventually uh, understood that they, they, they needed to have a bigger presence in the market. And so they made this big announcement where they, they announced finally that they had a, a, a sales director who was responsible for China, who was now going to be based in Teterboro. And it was just kind of, you still don't get it. Uh, and so they get it now. Yeah, they get it totally now, totally now. And uh, to a certain degree, being a little bit later to the party has served them well, actually. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the OEMs have changed over the years. Uh, it, uh, a lot of it, I used to say, was uh, it was it was it was tough years in the beginning. Uh, I I took on the responsibility for for Asia and. You know, we it took me three years to sell my first 
Gulfstream uh, into China, into the Asia Pacific region. And they, but they and it was almost, here, and it right? was almost like they, and again, I think it took a while for the OEMs to understand this that the, you know, the, the, the Chinese in particular were looking to see that you're going to stay. Okay. That it's not, you no know, one quarter, two quarters, this isn't working and I'm out. Right. They want to see that you're going to stay and they want to see that, uh, if I buy your airplane and I have problems, I'm going to be able to go down the street, knock on your door, and you're going to you're going to solve my problem. And I used to say, you know, the Chinese, if you will, and it's it's this isn't meant to be a derogatory comment. You know, they used to want to get blood from a stone first, and only once they saw that did they go, "I'm a true believer in you now. I know you're going to stay here. I'm happy to give you my business now." Right. And it took a while for us, a number of years before we finally got to that step where, you know, Wan Liu, Gulfstream, got to that point where everyone kind of realized, hey, these guys are not going away. I have confidence in, in investing in their aircraft because I know they're not going away. And, and, but the key to that was getting the demo aircraft out here, right? The absolute key to that was getting the demo airplanes. And again, that goes back to the, the support that I got from the head office back in, in Savannah. And we, uh, you know, Gulfstream at that point in time had two pre-owned aircraft. One was a, a G4, uh, and the other one was a G200. And they could have sold those airplanes and, and, and pocketed $30 million. But instead, they decided to invest that in Asia. And so one of the aircraft was put with uh, uh, Air China business jets in Beijing. It was the first B-registered Gulfstream in, in China, and it was operated by Air China. And then also put another G200 with Metrojet in, in Hong Kong. And both of those aircraft were on, shall we say, uh, certainly uncommercially sound deals where they were basically a, a, a charter by the hour price, but they provided me with the tools to take a very skeptical buyer who's thought, why should I, why should I fly on your private jet to Beijing when I can go out to the airport, get on a Cathay Pacific flight any hour, fly first class and, and have no stress. And having those tools available allowed me to go to him, well, fine, look, why don't I take you to Beijing tomorrow morning? And being able to do that. And I think as everyone in the industry knows, once you have that experience, it's really hard to go back. Right. Because again, and a lot of it is not just the experience in the aircraft, of course, it's also the experience in the Hong Kong BAC. And then it's the experience when you get to Beijing on being handled through the VIP uh, terminals there. So again, it all has to work for you. And if you put it all together, Wow, it's it's a pretty powerful uh, experience where you go. I get it. I get it now. I, I'm in. As a result of that, for a long time, Hong Kong had the largest fleet of G200s in the world. <laughs> but it all came from that one aircraft that was invested initially in the market. Right. So, just uh, two two last questions. Um, how do you think the OEMs have evolved in terms of how they view Asia as a region? You and I often say. It's not one region. And I think, you know, there used to be a time when maybe headquarters just assumed APAC was one place, but they've now come to realize that within Asia, there are so many different kind of regions that Australia is different from Japan. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of chuckling because head office used to think that you could, you could traverse Asia in four hours as well or something, you know, that they didn't realize to go from Sydney to Tokyo was like 24 hours. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, as I 
you know, all the comments we've been making, for instance, about the, regarding the China market and China buyers, I mean, it does not apply to a Thai buyer. It doesn't apply to a Japanese buyer. Every country is different and has its own idiosyncrasies, if you want, and its own cultural uh, norms that have to be as much as possible adhered to in order to get the transaction done. And I, I think of the Japanese, for instance, um, and, you know, again, Thai, Malaysia, Singapore, they're all different. They're all different as well. And that's always been the challenge for the OEMs out here because initially you can't invest and have a, a sales director in every country. Right. You have to, you know, it's, it's a balance that has to be maintained where you have one, I mean, initially I covered all of Asia for Gulfstream. I mean, it turned out to be ridiculous right. because there was just no way I could cover it all. And so I was down in Melbourne maybe, but then up in Japan and Tokyo. And it's just it eventually got to unsustainable and unsustainable to the point where you were missing business opportunities because you just couldn't move around as much. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, each country is different. Each country needs its own approach. Each well, country has its own challenges from infrastructure, you name it. Okay. So then this, this will be the last question. So all of the OEMs kind of at one time or another took a different approach or melded their approach. And what I mean by that is there are some OEMs who said, we need an expat here. There are some who have said, we want a, represent, a rep or a dealer. Uh, maybe there are some that eventually uh, um, hired locals. Um, I don't know. Has there been a, a, an evolution in that thinking, or is it just a kind of a loop where they go back and forth between the different? Yeah, I think there's been, there's been two evolutions. One being that certainly at my time with Gulfstream, I relied heavily on a network of sales representatives. And that's how I was able to cover every country because I had someone in that country working as a sales rep uh, for Gulfstream. Right. Uh, that changed over time where the OEMs, I think, felt strong enough and understood the market enough that they didn't need that local rep anymore. Because we know the local rep adds cost. Yeah. So eventually it got to the point where they felt understood the market well enough or had enough of a market presence, brand awareness and everything, traction, that they didn't need that local rep. So that's one of the evolutions that have happened. And the other one is right. I mean, uh, if I think of Gulfstream, I mean, Gulfstream doesn't have an expat out here. And you, they don't hire anyone on an expat package either. It's, it's, it's local guys based in, in the country, either Hong Kong or China, and they're not expats. They're not out there. You know, when I came out here originally... It, even, even though I came out here permanently, it wouldn't be unusual to someone to come out here on a three-year three year contract. He already had that return ticket. Right. He knew he was going back. Right. So, but that's completely changed. Yeah, and you lose all the continuity and the relationship. Exactly. All that, all but, that. Um, so, anyway, that's why they can rely on you. So. Captain. Uh, okay, that's it for, I think, the serious Q&A, but I want to end with a- Oh, there's more. I want to end with a couple of fun <laughs> ones. As we've often said, okay. we know how serious- This isn't going to be this, about the NBA again, is no, it? No, no, Okay, no. all right, all right. We know how serious this time is and how difficult it is for everyone, but we do want to make this a little bit light. So okay. uh, some of these were questions that people actually wrote in, which I did laugh at, and others of them uh, I, I made up. Okay. Uh, so the first one, and this was a real question, and uh, uh, our friend David Taylor from Embraer asks, Jeff, okay. uh, when will there be a COVID-19 vaccine? It's not going to be this year. Okay. Uh, it's 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 going to be. Uh, I, I think certainly there's a, there's a worldwide effort to to try to come up with one. 
Um, if you believe the press, whether or not everyone's talking to each other is another story. It seems everyone else, everyone is kind of working on a solution, but doing it in silos. And I'm not sure that's the best approach. So much for global harmony and everyone working together for this pandemic. Uh, so I don't think we're going to see anything until next year. Got it. Well, thank, thank you, David. For, yeah, thanks, for David. That, for that yeah. Uh, David Henderson writes in, uh, what will Carlos Ghosn's escape mean for business aviation in Japan? Uh, it's it's devastating for business aviation that, in you're Japan. Being serious now? I, I'm being serious oh, okay. now. Uh, I think if you if you if you talk to operators in that, uh, it has led to a much more heightened scrutiny when it comes to private aviation and aircraft entering and exiting uh, Japan, and certainly. Uh, private passengers and the screening that they go through now when they want to enter or leave. So it definitely has had a detrimental effect in that sense. Okay. Uh, Can you share some tips for staying sane while working from home with three young children who aren't (laughs) in school? Uh, Staying sane. Uh, You told me earlier you have a second career now as a homeschool teacher. As a homeschool teacher. Uh, Yes. uh, Which... I guess uh, some of the success is that uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm a free I'm a pretty I'm a pretty stress free free guy, so I don't get too worked up about most things, um, and uh, I'm able to manage to have a, a, a reasonable balance between the work and, and the home life. Uh, it does require at times uh, some unusual working hours, but that's that's just the way it is. So okay. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, how happy do you think most executives are or unhappy that they cannot travel right now? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think to a certain degree, and you, you may not get them to admit it, that uh, being at home isn't such a bad thing as well. Uh, I think uh, we all do through the year get worn down with all the travel. It does take its toll. Uh, and it takes our its toll in a, in a number of different ways. Uh, yes, there are always uh, you know challenges being at home, and, but I think to a certain degree, the time spent now at home uh, with family, if you have that, or just uh, on your own, it seems for most people that I've talked to, they're they're using all the time productively yeah, as well. I agree with that. Uh, you know, people are doing some things that you know now that they have a little bit of extra time, just because maybe they don't have a one hour you know uh, transit time to the office or something, they do by nature, have more time, people are using that productively. And so I think it's, it's, they may not want to admit it, but everyone's okay with it. How long for is another story. Uh, how long it can drag on for, uh, it's kind of been a nice break. It's a little bit of a vacation or holiday, but uh, we'll see as time goes on. Okay. And then I guess this is, this is the last one sort of semi-series. Um, what is the biggest frustration that you've had because of COVID? And again, we're not, you know, we're not getting into anything about people being hurt and losing jobs. And we know how serious, serious that is. But just from a practical Jeff Lowe every day, um, trying to get things done, what's been the hardest part about the COVID crisis? Is it, is it not being able to, to get inspections done? Is it... Um, oh, well, there's, there's, a, there's certainly an impact on the business side. Uh, it's... You know, the logistics of a transaction now are very hard to sort of navigate your way through, and partly because it changes every day. The goalposts get moved every day. 
I mean, that, that's frustrating. It's for frustrating for everyone in our organization, from the people at the, the pointy end of the stick dealing directly with the client to everyone through the back office. It's, it's, it's got its challenges. From a personal standpoint, I, I have to say I'm, I'm super fortunate in that really all the other kind of restrictions that have come along with, with, uh, with the coronavirus. And again, maybe it's part of the, the Hong Kong psyche, uh, you know, masks and sanitizing and, and getting sprayed down by my wife when I come in the front door, uh, wiping down this, wiping down that. I, I'm not allowed to take the elevator anymore. I have to take the stairs because my wife is concerned that, you know, the elevator is a small space. Who knows what was, who knows who was in there last. So we take the stairs. But it's not, it's not really a huge inconvenience, okay? No, I, and so to a, lot of a lot of people. So again, I again, I'm fortunate. I have I have space at home. Uh, everyone's healthy. Uh, yes, we're practicing the necessary social distances and taking all the precautions. But it really hasn't been a huge, huge impact. No, and Hong Kong has been been sort of lucky during. I mean, yes. whether lucky or prepared yeah. or smart about it. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, that was great. Uh, for anybody who is tuning in, again, please go to the website and get our publications, the Business Jet Fleet Report and ASQ. Please watch Jeff's presentation uh, where you'll get all the numbers from the Fleet Report and all the numbers from ASQ. Uh, Mike Walsh also has a presentation that we've put up as part of Fleet Week, and we will be releasing a series of podcasts uh, with business aviation leaders from around Asia. So please look for that too. Thank you, everybody who has listened, tuned in, and especially thank you to everybody who works at Asian Sky Group and Asian Sky Media. It is a very, very intensive process to put all of this together, get everything released. It hasn't been easy, especially with all the issues going on. So a big thank you to everybody, and that's it. We're out. Thanks for joining us this week on Asian Skycast. Make sure to visit our website, Asian Sky Media where you can subscribe to the show on your phone or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show.